say, oh my God, first Obama and then Trump, the United States is tobogganing towards Gomorrah. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the ER. Today, I'm joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Also with us is Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Finally, we have Laura Jakes, deputy managing editor of FP News. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Guys, I don't know how much free time you've got on your hands. Uh, Not much. Not much. Certainly, Corey out there between the hot tubs and the beach and all the kind of activities that you guys do in California, I I imagine not much. But I'm hoping you took the time to read Jeffrey Goldberg's 450,000-page article in The Atlantic, um, uh, which was an interview with uh, President Obama about his foreign policy. Uh, did Did you get to that, Corey? Indeed. The Atlantic even gave me the chance to write a reaction to it. Oh, did? Oh, and did you write a reaction? I did. And what was your reaction? Just uh, forgive me for not having seen that. <laughs> it's only just gone up, David. No reason you should have. Um, I was the thing that what so it was an extraordinary series of interviews. And the thing that struck me most was how weirdly dissociative the president's language was and how frequently words like resentment and frustration. And I almost can't believe he gave that interview while still in office because it's hard for me to see how he's going to get cooperation from our friends and allies afterwards. Uh, I mean, particularly people like the Saudis after he sort of Threw them under the bus? Yeah, or the British. (laughs) The predominant reaction from people around Prime Minister Cameron is, well, yeah, he was rude and dismissive about Cameron, but he was rude and dismissive about everyone. Interesting. Well, let's let's circle back now that I know that you're on the record on this thing. Uh, Laura, what was your take? Well, the article starts off obviously talking about the red line debate Uh, that uh, kind of gripped Washington after in August 2013 after these horrible chemical weapons attacks in um, Syria killed intelligence agencies, estimate over a thousand people. Some numbers have been much lower than that. But um, prior to this, Obama, of course, had said if Assad uses chemical weapons on his people, that is the red line. That's what is going to trigger our reaction. Of course, he did not do that. Um, I think the article sets out a good timeline of why, but I also think we knew so much of this. I wasn't surprised to read that Obama was very proud of the fact that he didn't go into Syria. We, we knew that this president didn't want to engage in Mideast wars. This article has a lot of good new details about why he doesn't want to, why he has never been an interventionist president when it comes to the Mideast. Um, I, I was taken more so by the uh, the little detail about Obama and Putin apparently confabbing at the G20 summit where – and I'd never heard this before – that apparently they had the entire CW um, issue worked out that but even before this had all gone down, right? I mean the way that I read it was that um, they had decided that they were going to ship out Assad's stockpile of chemical weapons 
And those of us who were covering um, Syria and, and ex- especially Secretary Kerry at the time remember this press conference where Kerry kind of flippantly said, oh, sure, you know, maybe something could be worked out if only, you know, Russia would help us uh, get all of the chemical weapons out of Syria. And uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov said, oh, OK, we'll go ahead and do that. And so to us who were there, it looked like Lavrov was calling Kerry's bluff. But now it turns out that Putin and Obama had already had this entire little deal sealed. I, I was very surprised to read that. It's also, I think, the case that that's sort of Obama's leaving office spin, right? That That's sourced to him. There's no reason to believe necessarily that that's true. The way that Kerry mused a lot about it at the time does not suggest that this was a, a well-hatched plan. I mean, wait, a, wait a second. Are you actually saying that just because the president said it doesn't mean it's true? I know. For anybody listening, they've dropped whatever they're drinking and done a spit take if they have liquid in their mouth. Yeah. Well, it's true. All those sort of nerd students at Bard College and elsewhere listen to this thing of spit out their pacifiers. I thought it was Merlot. Yeah, th- there's the cliche about how lonely the presidency is. You know, yeah. There are the photos of JFK kind of walking by himself and LBJ walking by himself. What struck me was that the president has sort of made it lonely in a way that he didn't necessarily have to do. There's repeated references to how he's undercut John Kerry and that John Kerry knows it and his John Kerry's aides know it that he goes off kind of gallivanting around the world and other leaders don't believe the president has his back. He's pushed away the Saudis now very publicly. Uh, John Hudson, one of the reporters here, reached out for comment, and they had a one-word comment, no. Um, what no to what was the to question? A, to, and to any comment. Do you want no. to talk about this in any way, shape, or form? No. Click. Uh, he's pushed away now the British by name. He's pushed away the, the French, French. The French by name. He's pushed away, obviously, the Israelis. And then you go down the line, so he has no relationship with Congress. He has no relationship with some people in his own cabinet or other world leaders. And that just jumped out at me. You have this kind of unrepentant, fully believing that he will be judged right by history but very much alone by his own choosing. I think Yogi makes a really good point that the president actually can't play team sports, right? Like he he's so consumed with the fact that he's the smartest guy in the room and that nobody else understands uh, the genius of his approach to foreign policy that he doesn't have to bring others along, whether it's America's allies or Congress. And it really comes through strikingly in the Atlantic article, uh, just how much the president thinks he's the only person who understands this and he doesn't need to play team sports. Yeah, I, you know, to me what was remarkable, given the length of the article, was how little I learned. And, you know, I've got the highest regard for Jeff Goldberg, and I think he went and he did a lot of reporting and he really laid things out and it was well written, and I'm not talking about any of that. I just think that, you know, it was one of those articles where if you're an Obama supporter and you read the article, you'll go, oh, that Obama, he's a great guy. And if you're an Obama detractor and you read the article, you'll go, boy, that guy, he really proved what a loser he is. And, you know, it doesn't change anything. Um, But maybe – did I miss something? I had the same reaction. I mean, Lara flagged that the one kind of scoopy thing, one was the G20 thing, this this, uh, assertion that they had a deal in place on the weapons. The other was Obama now sort of for the first time acknowledging the reality of Libya being a failed state and a, and a failure. But, but I had the same reaction. I mean, people, those who read FP, hopefully a large number of whom are listening to this. But, do- dozens. Do- <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> people, yeah. pe- people who follow this closely, we knew all of this. We knew that Obama changed his mind on the strike at the last time. We knew that there was an- angst about it. 
We knew that he didn't want to go and felt pulled in by do you the think, Europeans. Do you think on the Libya thing he's throwing the people in his cabinet who urged him to do Libya under the bus? And it's not that he's throwing his own policy. It's a little bit of a dig at Hillary and the others. I, I don't. It's a great. It's a great question. I, I don't know about a dig at Hillary, but certainly a dig at, at others inside and outside Washington. I mean, he had that David. I remember you and I spoke about it once. He had. There's that amazing moment after the first group of U.S. trained rebels went in and were immediately overcome. And uh, the White House response was, see, we never wanted to do this. And all of you said we should. And see, we told you it wouldn't work. As if they were just passive observers. What was really striking for me is the way the president dissociates himself from his own policies. And Libya is the great example of it, right? Other people failed him. He, he, He mentions in the interviews his enormous admiration from for Brent Scowcroft. Scowcroft would be aghast at an interagency that runs the way this one does, and he would be aghast at a president who, you know, sets things in motion and takes no responsibility for outcomes. And the way the president talks about Libya, as though, you know, none of this was comprehensible in advance of the administration's uh, involvement, but it revealed itself in the aftermath, Skullcroft would be outraged at people not asking elementary questions about the potential consequences and drawbacks of their policies. Going back to Libya, another thing that jumped out at me, just maybe it's my you know, internal thought process, but so he, he's saying several times that the U.S. should set the agenda, that he recognizes that the U.S. has a kind of a moral authority or responsibility in the world to help set the agenda, to lead, to uh, figure out the path forward. But then he kind of says at the same time, but the rest of the world should carry it out, which seems awfully you know, naive in the best kind of sensibility and really... I hate to say it, but arrogant and the worst. I mean, who is the United States to say, okay, this is the way the world should be. Now you guys go do it and then criticize when he doesn't like the outcome. That just doesn't – it just doesn't seem to wash. I think there's also a sort of weird internal contradiction, right? Like his argument for why we went to Libya was Gaddafi was on the march to Benghazi. He was going to slaughter them like rats. So we had to go in to protect. Then we have Syria where people are dying by the hundreds of thousands. Millions are fleeing. But we don't have that same responsibility to intervene and protect. Um, I was surprised that Jeff, who's a brilliant writer, didn't press him on that slightly more pointedly. You know, if you're going to intervene in Libya and basically now break a state on humanitarian grounds, why not do something in Syria whose collapse is threatening almost every country around it? Well, I mean, I don't think the president's logic would stand up to that kind of analysis. But there were also some interesting things on what was not said here. So, for example, in the discussion of the whole red line issue in Syria— There was no mention of Iran. There was no mention of the fact that the president was working hard on trying to get an Iran deal throughout this whole thing. And the Iranians said, if you go in, this is going to hurt the deal. And, you know, to me, that seems like a pretty salient issue. Uh, and yet it didn't come up. Did it, that leap out at anybody else? And were there other issues like that? I do recall the State Department saying that they can walk and chew gum at the same time, that what was happening in Syria and what was happening with the Iran deal were two totally different diplomatic tracks 
with Iran. Um, maybe that's naive of me to believe, but I, David is nodding his head strongly. Yes. But I, I do think that uh, the State Department is somewhat siloed off in some of these things. Maybe Kerry himself is not. But the people who are actually working the issues don't really cross paths. Yeah, but it, I mean, one of the subtexts of this whole period, the Obamian period in U.S. foreign policy, is that particularly with regard to the Middle East, the president's clear objective was to step away from the U.S. traditional allies in the region and get closer to Iran. And that was that's a through line throughout the whole thing. And he says practically as much in the context of the article. And so the question then becomes, to what extent was he motivated in his walk around the South Lawn when he decided not to go in uh, ultimately into Syria by his concerns about Iran? Right. And, and also to, to – I, I agree. And also to what end? I mean what what's his vision for Iran and the U.S. five years from now? He talks a bit about what he hopes will be the case in Asia, a little bit about what he hopes may be the case in Syria. But what does he actually hope will be the deal with Iran? I mean, he had that quote to Jeff in a previous interview about how – He's all in on this deal. His name is on it. So, of course, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, then it'll shape his, his legacy in a bad way. But what does he think will happen with Iran going forward? Is it just that there's this deal and nothing else? Is it they help us against Hezbollah? They help us somehow in Syria? That, that wasn't explored. The other thing, to get meta for a second, you know, the White House wouldn't give this kind of access, multiple interviews to the president, interviews with Kerry, et cetera, et cetera. They wouldn't do it to any reporter, although they do like and trust Jeff, unless they thought they'd get something that they saw as sort of vaguely positive. And I'm not sure what that is, right? The big knock at him has been he's Spock. He's all logic and cool dispassion. And in this, Jeff refers to him as Spockian repeatedly. When he talks about the Syrians, there's no empathy particularly. It's just sort of a cold discussion about the human toll towards the Syrians. He's seen as being not friendly to Israel. This article kind of carries that through. He's seen as shifting from the Gulf to the Iranians as you flag. This article has that again. His logic about Putin, I've always found a little bit baffling. This Putin is weak because he intervened which is kind of hard quite to get your head around. It's Putin, if anything, is more... Well, that's because Obama is strong because he did nothing. Right. Exactly. Flipping on its head. Right. Right. Uh, Corey, did you come away from this article with one shred of new insight into Obama? And do you think better of him in any respect as a result of it? No. I in a word. actually um, found shocking the easy arrogance and assumption uh, in in the interviews and I I'm puzzling right now over Yoki's question which is what did the White House think this gets them well they, they actually I get them more cooperation from American allies it certainly doesn't get them you know the only thing I think I think the only way this makes sense is if you genuinely believe that, you know, you're on the right side of history and the arc of history is bending toward you. Because the in looking at the commentary, the only positive commentary about the president's interviews comes from Derek Chalet, who's obviously not a disinterested party and who's aligning himself entirely with the Obama worldview. Um, and, and in fact, is writing a book defending the Obama foreign policy right now. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, There's nobody else who's... And, and Derek's argument comes down to the 
defense of that, yes, the Syria red line was the high point and was liberation. He actually uses the analogy of the president as the Christian Bale character from the big short, right? Like listening to music that's all his own and not tuning into the Washington establishment because he's a misunderstood genius. And, and that seems to me a really long limb to have crawled out on. You know, Obama knows that his second term is foreign policy is going to be defined by this red line debate and what, what happened in Syria and if he actually hurt it instead of helped in the civil war. And so maybe this was his attempt, whether ill-advised or not, to try to get out in front of that, to try to set the narrative, to try to say, even though, yes, I think we all knew it, I was very proud of this moment. So we might look at it as kind of a shot across the bow to everybody who's going to be his detractor to say, no, okay, if you're going to make this my legacy, then this is how I'm going to defend it. I also thought, so it's kind of a fist in your face, right? I also thought this plays into his entire conversation about the foreign policy establishment and how he's throwing the playbook out. And it, that kind of, I mean, that was kind of insidery Washington nitty gritty stuff that those of us who deal with this world and walk in this world uh, deal with all the time. And so that was interesting uh, just for maybe our little circle of, of weirdness. But um, I, I thought it was interesting also because a lot of the people in his own administration have reached out to this very foreign policy establishment. I mean, before Stan, General Sam McChrystal uh, did the surge in Afghanistan in 2009, uh, he had a lot of people come in from different think tanks. And I was thinking about the people he actually did ask to come in and advise him on whether or not he should do the troop surge in Afghanistan. And I remember at the time thinking, these people are kind of old and tired. So maybe those pe- maybe the White House should be talking to a diversity of voices, that there are other think tanks in town, that there are other smart people in town, and to not just go to the same old, same old. Well, you know, that gets to one of the things that really drives me up a tree about this article. Um, uh, and that is... Corey used the word dissociate a lot. And, you know, you know, the president looks at his foreign policy um, and 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 says, oh, that thing about adding troops in 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 Afghanistan. That wasn't my idea. That was the military. I got bullied into that. You know, that Libya thing. That wasn't me. That was that was I got bullied into that. Right. The buck stops somewhere else, apparently. Right. The buck stops. I mean, but that actually the the funny thing is that when I read the article, I thought literally the first thing I thought was they obviously took the buck stops here sign off the president's (laughs) desk. And it's like someplace in the Smithsonian because he doesn't believe this anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah. David, I think you made the point uh, in shameless plug for your book, in your book, about White Houses can learn, right? You could have a second-term White House that learns from its first term or, or doesn't. And you cited the Bush administration that the second term, they moved away from torture. They moved away from the, the opening uh, embrace of Gitmo. They moved towards shifting strategy in Iraq. What was striking here was you don't see that. You don't see acknowledgement that, hey, we got some stuff wrong, therefore we're going to do something radically different. If anything, it's we got screwed by the military, so we're not going to trust them on anything else. We got... You know, screwed by this, so we're not going to trust them on anything else. Also, you know, to Laura's point, it's rare to me that you see history being written in real time, right? Usually a president leaves office and then aides come out and say, well, we said this, this, this. In this one, you not only had former aides like Bob Gates and Leanne Panetta all saying, hey, we disagreed about whatever. You also have John Kerry saying, yeah, I disagreed with this. And Joe Biden saying, yeah, I disagreed with it. 
And that also jumped out at me. You have well, in this fact, open you have division. Every single national security aide to the president of the United States publicly saying at one point or another that he disagreed with the president on some vital issue. It's 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 really. I mean, this goes back to Corey's point that Brent Scowcroft, and I think in the article the president uses the term. I love that guy. Um, you know, Brent Scowcroft would never have tolerated a foreign policy like that. Um, I think that's right, David. In fact, um, something that Jeffrey Goldberg doesn't cover much in the article, but seems to me that the archetypical example that sets the pattern for the Obama administration, and I agree with Laura that there's no, no change, no learning over time. It's the Afghanistan reviews done in the first year of the administration, where they conclude that the military can't be trusted, is just trying to box them in. It never occurs to the White House that perhaps they are giving political guidance to the military planning process that is producing outcomes that they don't want, right? They take no responsibility for the fact that the military, having listened to the president campaign for Afghanistan is the good war and that it had been under-resourced, they take no responsibility for planning guidance that is producing numbers that they don't like. They, they believe the military trapped them in. They believe that the foreign policy establishment trapped them in. They believe that America's allies trapped them in. And that's what sets the president on this course of Ben Rhodes as his only trustworthy foreign policy advisor. Or yep. Dennis McDonough. Yep. I mean, but Dennis McDonough, that's right. So, I mean, I think, Corey, I think you point out such, I had not thought of, I'd not remembered that until you brought it up. Um, but the fact that you're right, he did campaign that Afghanistan was supposed to be the good war, and then he doesn't get the results that he wants. And so all of a sudden, all military intervention is evil. I think the Syria debate goes back to something fundamental about this administration. He didn't want to do it. He didn't really want to do Libya, which is why he didn't do very much in Libya, if anything at all, except for wave the flag. He did not want to go into Syria. And so when he bucks all of his advisors, when Kerry comes out of a meeting and says, I just got F bleeped, you know, that's what this speaks to. He goes on a walk with Dennis McDonough, his chief of staff, and they come back and he says, nope, I'm not going to do it. And Ben Rhodes' accounting of this is, well, you know, if you know when the president has to grapple with something that's a 4951 decision, he might be a little agitated. In this instance, he was very calm, which, again, goes to the point he never wanted to do this, even though all of his advisors said it was OK, even though he had publicly said, listen, if you cross this red line, we are going to go in, even though somebody like Hillary Clinton even though says— the, Even though the red line had been crossed a dozen times in the intervening period and— the decision had been made and the Secretary of State had already announced the decision. That's what I'm saying. And fair point. I mean, this there could not have been a more dramatic example for him to do it at, at a time when at the end of August, when so many people, you know, we, we were just inundated with these images of people shaking and unable to breathe and you know, blisters popping out on their faces because of the results of the chemical weapons. It, to, to me... You know, I, I, I think I understand what the the rationale behind this was by giving all this access and trying to get this out. And that is I think they really believe that in, in, in the president's explanations. And I think that they say, well, listen, if the people could just listen to the president and explain what he's doing, then everybody will get it. 
and that, you know, they don't hear any of the critiques that have been made. They, they think those critiques are erroneous or politically motivated or, 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 or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, the true believers at the core of the core, Ben Rhodes and Dennis McDonough and a couple of others, all of whom are good people, and I think the president seems like a good person, they seem to believe this. But what they don't seem to do the analysis that then goes on and says, well, here's what we're against, but what are we for? Here's what we're willing to do in this place, but what's our overall strategy? Because when I look at it, I don't see a strategy. I don't see what they're for. I see them listing the things they don't like and the groups they don't like and the things they don't want to do, um, perhaps with the exception of their desire to tilt the balance of power in the Middle East towards Iran, which seems very conscious. Am I wrong, right? What no, I, I think there's also this weird, you know, Corey used the phrase a couple of times, dissociative, but he's almost like a, in this, an outside commentator commentating on his own, commenting on his own presidency as compared to the, the active person shaping it. He talks again and again and again about how he wants to shift to Asia, you know, the pivot to Asia, this nerd phrase that they used early on. He talks, Jeff talks about how in Malaysia is where he sees Obama at the happiest, talking to these young entrepreneurs. And, and Obama keeps saying, he uses one point, the Godfather reference of just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. He doesn't want to be in the Middle East, but that's all fine and good, but you can't ignore it. You, know, that you can't just say, because I don't like this part of the world, I see it as intractable. It is. I see it as violent. It is. I see it revanchist. It is. That therefore, I'm going to move us to Asia because I see it, that is more important. You can't as president. And that's but he also didn't do anything to follow through in Asia. Right. I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, in there, but yeah. there, were, there was no calling on the bullshit, you know, yeah, going sit and talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs in Malaysia is not an Asia policy, you know. <laughs> well said, David. <laughs> no, but, but, but it's true, you know, in terms of what, you know, what's been our big China policy? What's been our, 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 our strategic reorientation to deal with the rise of China. How are we dealing with the changing situation in Japan? What you know, where where is all of this? There was some action in the first term under Hillary Clinton at the State Department, and as soon as they left in in the second term, it just evaporated into thin air. And he buys into the notion that the president said, "Well, I'm very proud of our pivot," but there hasn't been a pivot, and nobody in Asia thinks there's been a pivot. So. You know, why, I, you know, there's a little bit too much taking at face value, or am I wrong, Corey? No, I agree with everything you said, David. Um, I've, before we move away from the general topic of them lacking a strategy, though, I've, I want to point out that they make an even more fundamental error. So not only do they not have building blocks that add up to a cohesive whole, they don't even bother to ask themselves what are the potential downsides of doing nothing, right? What, what are the potential flaws in our argument? They just make the argument and are proud of themselves for their genius. They don't do the good Scowcroftian, what's the cost of this? What are the potential unintended consequences? And if they did that, I really believe there are enough intelligent people in the Obama administration that they would have caught some of these basic errors, like the fact that nobody in Asia thinks there's a pivot to Asia. All right. Let me ask a very hard question here, and I don't mind to put anybody you know, on the spot. And so if you don't want to answer the question, don't answer the question. We have just a few minutes left in this. Uh, but you know, one of the things that strikes me is the centrality 
of of Ben Rhodes in all of this and 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 Dennis McDonough too, but in this article Ben Rhodes sort of looms as a as a as a, as a large character, and Yucky, you made the point earlier that Hillary Clinton, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, um, Bob Gates, John Kerry, um, sort of the entire national security establishment of this administration has taken the president to task one way or another in the course of this kind of thing. He's alienated his own team. This speaks nothing of the leadership in the military where you know as well as I do that it's worse than it it is there. And yet somehow in all of this rises up this guy, Ben Rhodes. And, and, you know, he's like a kid. He comes in. He's a speechwriter. Um, he's got no strategic background at all. He's got no, you know. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he's a perfectly nice guy, and I've talked to him, and he seems like a nice, thoughtful guy. But in no world is this Brent Scowcroft or Henry Kissinger or Zbigniew Brzezinski or the kind of person who's advising a president. Um, you know, and and I'm struck by this, but then you know I'm like now old, so maybe I'm just some petulant old dude who doesn't think some young bright guy should be having the the you know the president's ear in this way, uh, even though he seems to have alienated anybody else. I, to me, this is a weird phenomenon. It's like you know all the serious people that you picked won't play with you, so let's take the kids because you know they won't challenge you, but. Maybe I'm just, you know, reading, I'm, you know, missing something. I'll take a swing at that one, David, because I agree with you. I'm in favor of young, smart guys, right? Jake Sullivan could do the job that Ben Rhodes is doing exceedingly well. But Ben Rhodes is no Jake Sullivan. And it actually is an important insight to President Obama that he surrounds himself with third-rate people instead of surrounding himself and taking the advice of, I don't know, Bob Gates, uh, Jim Mattis, he chooses people who are not his peers. And I think, like, deep down, there's insecurity at the basis of this, right? You have to surround yourself by lesser people in order to make, in order to sustain that belief, as Valerie Jarrett once said, that, you know, breathlessly said that, He's the smartest person ever. He is? I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I, I think what else you – this comes through both in the piece and I think it also helps explain the rise of Ben Rhodes. Obama sees himself as a writer, right? He, he wrote a very well-regarded book. He's going to write another book as soon as he leaves. He values writing. I mean, the reason I think he gave Jeff Goldberg at least five, six interviews over the presidency, he likes other prominent writers. And what comes through with this is – how much image and communication matter to him? I mean, in the piece, the only time he says, yeah, we messed up on something was we didn't communicate it clearly enough. We didn't communicate <laughs> fears about San Bernardino. We didn't make people understand that, hey, we get it. You're scared by ISIS. We get it. But that's the only thing he really expresses regret about, that he himself thinks we, the White House, messed up. It's not policy. It's not substance. It's communications. And when that's the case, Ben Rhodes, who's a communications guy, it helps explain it a bit. The, I, I just think it's an interesting phenomenon you know, I'll tell you a story, an interesting little tidbit on all of this, which is not too long. By the way, I'd like Derek Chalet. We made a reference to Derek Chalet, who, for those of you who are listening and don't know, was a sort of uh, assistant secretary level official in this administration. Um, and I got a call from a publisher saying somebody's out there shopping a book. 
saying this is a response to the Rothkopf critique of the Obama administration. <laughs> and it's and 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 it turned out to be Derek Chalet's book, and and the president's resp- you know whole argument here is a response. And I'm I'm not so arrogant to think that it's the Rothkopf critique because I think there's lots of people who've articulated this critique, um, but they do seem to be a little bit hypersensitive to this this notion that there is a budding narrative about the Obama administration as feckless, hesitant to act, not strategic, um, uh, tactically muddled, not particularly good internal processes, uh, weak you know, leadership at the NSC, not strong following within the military, bad relations with our allies around the world, not responsive to the opportunistic leaders like Putin and so forth. They just – it. I, you know, I think they're afraid that that's going to take root. And the idea of giving all of this time to Jeff is to begin an effort and, you know, pushing other people to write books and so forth, is to get an effort to sort of change this narrative. But, you know, as I said, this is in the Gates book. It's in the Panetta book. It's in the Petraeus book. It's hidden there between the lines in the Hillary book. Um, it's in what Hegel said after Hegel left office. It, I, I don't think, you know, the, I mean, it's certainly not the Rothkopf critique. It just seems to be the, the you know, the, the, the fact. This seems to be, and, and, you Here's know. Here's the delicious irony. It's not a budding narrative. It is the full-blown consensus view of the Washington foreign policy establishment. Who, who he despises. And I, I don't he think does. it's coincidence that he refers to some of the think tanks as Arab-occupied territory. I mean, he sees them as doing the bidding of uh, Arab funders who see him as, as feckless in the Middle East and hates them because of it. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting that the person stuck in the middle is going to be Hillary Clinton, right? Like in the Democratic primary, she's saying, I'm the bigger supporter of President Clinton than uh, President Obama, excuse me, than Bernie Sanders. You know, this critique you, Bernie Sanders, are making, I expected it from a Republican, not from a Democrat. Then she'll have to immediately pivot in the general to say, but I'm not Obama part two. I'm not Obama's third term. I'm not that. And so she's, gonna, she's in this weird position of having to be that in the Democratic primary and then not be that in the general. Well, she's fortunate, however, because it looks like the person she's going to be running against is Donald Trump, who has no foreign policy experience, is a menace to society, is you know, undoubtedly going to top the list of you know, assholes who've run for president as the biggest asshole ever to have run for president, which is saying something. Um, and, uh, and you know, so long as she runs against him, these kind of little contradictions don't matter, right? Except that he happens to be doing extraordinarily well in the polls, right? I mean, and his argument of Obama weak, me strong, I mean, literally spoken almost in those, in that five, six word sentence, that may resonate. I mean, for people who just think, Obama's weak. They may not have given a huge amount of thought to what that means. And he says, I'll be strong. I'll be the tough guy. I think that will resonate. Yeah. And by the way, it does suggest what he's going to say about her. Right. Which is, she's weak. She doesn't have energy. You know, that whole thing. I'm, 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 I've got the, the, I don't know, whatever, the adrenaline. I don't know. What, what, is it, what, what does he have, you know? Small hands, big hands. I'm not sure what it is that sets him apart. Corey, you're a Republican. You must be so proud. Indeed. 
<laughs> the, the revealing silence. Right. Nobody has anything to say. It's like, what am I going to do? Isn't it what's going to happen? Let's be serious. A bunch of big Republicans are going to support Hillary. Yes, that's true. Yeah, or at a minimum, shift their money totally to the Senate. You know, say nothing about the presidential, give no money for the presidential, and just try desperately to keep the Senate. Actually, I think that's a really good point, um, especially if the people who are coming out for Trump are who are so anti-Hillary and so anti-establishment anyways that, that those two forces joining up would just be a dark side for them, and that will cause them to come out and vote yeah, but that's even more. I think that I think that that is that is a, an excellent point. I also think, and by the way, I, I do have to say for the benefit of our our loyal listener out there, that, that <laughs> He Man, <laughs> right? I spent a lot of time thinking about He Man this weekend. Really? I did. I thought that Shiro was a much better name than He Man, and this was my internal dialogue on my run on Sunday morning. So He Man, thanks to you. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad to have gotten to your internal dialogue on your run. But um, that – Could that, be worse than cartoon characters. Yeah. But it, it's, as, as far as this goes, I have been wrong about everything that's happened in this election so far. I mean even in my own house, every week I'm like, OK, this is the end. Trump's done. And then he wins you know, and he keeps going. And I don't understand. I literally have cognitive dissonance. I can't believe it's happening. If you had said to me, Rin Tin Tin or – you know, some of the some character from South Park was the leading Republican candidate. I would think just as likely as Donald Trump being the leading candidate from for, for the for the Republican Party. I have the same reaction, David. <laughs> but 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 having said that, um, it doesn't stop me from making a prediction that if this actually becomes Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, she's going to get seventy percent of the vote because. Right. Donald Trump's support plateaus out around 40-odd percent of the Republican Party, which is half the vote. So that's 20 percent of the overall electorate. Um, and we, we haven't even gotten into the scrutiny or the fear that's likely to manifest itself should he have actually have a chance of becoming president of the United States. I, although – I think that you'll begin to see a decent number of Sanders supporters, not a huge number, not a majority, start saying they back Trump. You know, the exit polls are interesting because the people who, especially in Michigan, who voted for Sanders, anti-free trade was their number one issue. They hate free trade. So if it's Hillary who is seen as the embodiment of NAFTA, the embodiment of Although she's trade deals. It under the, she, she's, she's trying. Yeah. Right. She's trying to say she's not that even though we know she supported this trade deal while in office. But if it's her with her ties to Wall Street and the Goldman Sachs speeches for $750,000 that she won't release the transcripts of, if there's all of that and then there's just Trump saying free trade sucks, free trade sucks, free trade sucks, you might see some Sanders voters go to Trump. I mean think about this way. Pundits have been wrong about this election for every prediction they made, and now there are just two things left for them to be wrong about because they've been wrong about everything else. One, he won't get the nomination. He will, so they can be wrong about that one. And then there's one thing left. He can't win the presidency. And given that they're batting zero, I'm not sure you can just assume that, hey, they're going to bat zero for everything. Right. No, I do think I think the scenario Yoki lays out where you get the anti-Clinton left of the Democratic Party supporting the the Trump candidacy in a general election. I do think that's plausible and scary. And um, I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that sense will prevail. 
America 2016, everybody. Let's give ourselves a round of applause. Yeah, well, look, you know, I, I blame almost entirely the Republican Party. I blame them for small the, the small government speech, which sort of suggested that all government is bad and that you need to get rid of it. And the Mitch McConnell obstructionism, which is we're not going to get anything done. And because if nothing gets done, that's the same as having small government, you know, effectively. And it sort of created a mindset. And then, you know, the whole values voter thing, which is code for white Christians are fine and everybody else isn't, has a racist subtext to it. Um, but if you sort of take that whole thing and, and, and you know, you play it out, you know, the average American might not be, you know, uh, uh, it might not be surprising to find that the average American thinks, well, it doesn't matter who I like president because nothing gets done in Washington anyway. So I can have a protest vote and elect this jerk reality show host as president of the United States and it won't have any effect. I think there is a bigger force at play and that's that people feel like change is happening really fast and they don't have any ability to affect it. it I know I've used this analogy before, but but our current political climate feels a lot like the 1890s, where there's this tidal wave. When of you were in high school, technological change, where um, the immigrant composition is changing. Immigration is changing the country enormously. People don't understand it. There's no, there aren't leaders explaining what's happening and encouraging people to face change bravely. That it's taking us to a good place. Right? Even if you think about how we're talking about trade policy, nobody is acknowledging that we're the beneficiaries of trade. Things that used to be expensive are now cheap. And you know who that's best for? The American poor. Nobody's making those kinds of arguments. And so the, the world feels like a runaway train. And I don't think that is a function of Mitch McConnell. I don't think that's a function of a racist undercurrent, although I agree that both of those things are true. But I think the bigger story is people feel like a lot's changing. They don't understand it. There's nobody that's speaking to their fears. And that's how you get, I think, both the Sanders left and the Trump crazy, the crazy world in which evangelicals support Donald Trump. I mean, I agree with that last point, and I think part of it is there was a consensus dating back to the 90s that free trade is good, it will help the country, NAFTA is good, you know, deregulation is good, especially if you can deregulate parts of Wall Street and help the money flow more easily. But lost in that was that there was a real impact on the working class, that there are tens of millions of people for whom this was not a good thing, for whom their jobs are gone and their cities are decimated, and neither party spoke to it. There was a consensus among both parties, frankly, that these policies are good for the country, and if there's a little collateral damage here and there, it's unfortunate, but we don't need to really get invested in it. And I think what you're seeing now is the eruption of rage from the people who were affected and say, what about us? You left us behind and we are not okay with that. And that's who's going for Trump and that's who's going for Sanders. And it's not totally irrational. I have to say, maybe I've read too many sort of impressionistic plays of the 30s and 40s, but the notion that evangelicals are voting for a character that could easily be Satan um, has a certain irony to it. I'm not saying that Donald Trump... Hey, David, it's craziness. Yeah, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is Satan, but, you know... 
key. Any, any so, podcast that's so that. Trumpian. Yeah. Wow, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, you know, this country has seen has gone through times of intense fear. Uh, we were having an internal staff uh, conversation a couple of days ago, and we talked about the the fear in the country right after 9/11, and the fear in the country during the 1980s. Uh, when we were in the middle of a Cold War and going back generations before. But I, I have to say, it's, it's kind of striking when we compare today with just eight years ago when this country was moving into a spirit of hope. And now we're going into almost a spirit of hate. And it's very jarring to many, not only many Americans, but our allies overseas, people in Italy, people in Germany, um, people in Britain just do not understand what is happening here. Yeah, imagine yourself being a mid-level foreign service officer working on democracy promotion around the world right now. That I, is I don't want to. Sorry for. That's an awful thing to say to me. I mean, you what, do we really have to imagine that? <laughs> we need to we need to send encouraging thoughts to people who are trying to shape the world in positive ways and having to explain American democracy at the moment. It is true. I, uh, I was having a conversation with some middle-level uh, State Department people last week, and they said, you know, I don't know how you cover Trump. It's just, it must be awful for you. I just have to track every word that he says. And I said, no, it doesn't really bother me at all. I don't have to worry about working for him in a couple of months. And they said, yeah, that's, that's true. That's Mic drop. That's that is that is very mean. Um, on the other hand, I just do we really need to have mid-level officials work on democracy promotion? This Has any of, of them uh, ever produced any democracy anywhere? This will be part of Trump's cutting waste, fraud, and abuse. It'll miraculously balance the budget by cutting these mid-level. Yeah, well, if there's ever been a there's presidential candidate who knows something about waste, fraud, and abuse, it's right. got to be Donald Trump. Ladies and gentlemen. That knows mid-level foreign service officers. Yeah. Because helping, helping countries get the building blocks in place that make democracies vibrant is important and noble work. And it does help shape in the longer term the resilience of democratic societies or, most importantly, societies in transition away from authoritarianism. But just to bring this around full circle, you need those people out there to at least try to put a good face on the United States after everything that we've been talking about today, starting with the uh, administration, the current administration's propensity for trying to retrench back to our borders. Well, I can say, look, all I can say is from having talked to a lot of world leaders over the course of the past few months, most of them have been like, oh, my God, finally, Obama's going to go and we'll get sanity. <laughs> That's right. Be careful what you wish. That's for. right. And the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I have been falling back on um, on checks and balances, right? Like when when people say, "Oh my God, first Obama and then Trump," the United States is tobogganing towards Gomorrah. I I just keep saying. We are a system of government in which you have divided power for checks and balances and no crazy people in any one element of the government can can really run away with the show. And maybe at the end of the day, this will end up in a good place because Congress will be reminded that it has an important job to do 
and return to the activist management of American domestic and foreign policies that the founding fathers had hoped for them to be. Well, first of all, it's a great name for memoir, but I'm going to steal it for this episode of the ER. I'm, we're going to call it Tobogganing Towards Gamora. <laughs> um, and, you know, it'll just, you know, first we have Obama foreign policy and then we have the prospect of following it up with Trump foreign policy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, hope that cheers you up for your day. Your drive home uh, provides you the subtext for your workout. Uh, and we hope that uh, someday soon you will join us for another episode of The ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, The ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.